Today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Greg Hurd, Vice President of Design at Sage, a leading software solutions company that helps businesses manage everything from people to money. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand consultancy that taps into emotional insight and applies behavioral science to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Greg, my good friend, thank you so much for joining me today. And let's talk limbic sparks. Hey, Kevin. Yes, uh, I'm excited. It's Friday and it's um, I'm excited to be here. It's been a uh, long, challenging week, but I love finishing it off with uh, having a good conversation with uh, with uh, with good friends, especially ones who uh, where we've worked together for many years of different art incarnations. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to kind of just catch up and, um, and chat. I love that. And I'm so uh, thrilled that you're doing this with me today. And it's always so much fun to speak with you. So I'm going to start with, uh, with a question about what you do in your life. And, and, and when you're not so- solving design challenges for some of the biggest brands in the world, what are the things that spark your interest and get you motivated? Um, let's see. I think I, uh, well, I guess whether it's work or whether it's uh, personal life, uh, I guess I like, I like, um, I'm a, a kind of a problem solver, I think, and I like solving problems. Um, and I guess especially on the, and I'll switch to the work front here, the things that really get me motivated that I really like to kind of dig into is, is just overcoming complexity and um, especially problems that just have a big, um, that are at scale. And uh, I've found through my career that I've, uh, you know, guys I've gone from kind of, you know, working at smaller uh, kind of boutique agencies to bigger, to bigger, to bigger, I have just gotten more and more attracted to the scale of problems. And I, I can't go back to, I can't go back the other way. You know what I mean? I can't go back to more simple things because I kind of get uh, my attention span kind of goes, uh, goes away. I like the, the, the bigger, bigger problems to solve. Uh, so I guess that's a lot around what gets me motivated is just that idea of solving big problems uh, big design problems that are um, that are complex, and uh, I think also through that though I also get motivated by collaboration, teamwork, um, and I I don't like solving things myself. I really like to kind of get in and work it out with the team, and especially working with uh, multidisciplinary teams where you get different vantage points and you're trying to solve things that you know you can only solve together. And I, to to me that's a big motivator. I re- I really love that. I love that idea of simplifying complexity in big organizations and, and teams are so important. I, I, in the work that I do, I always like to say strategy is a team sport because I really, you, you thrive off of the people that you're, you're bouncing ideas off of and you're, you're, ele- you're elevating each other's ideas in the spirit of trust and that things can be solved together. So when you're surrounding yourself with a team, when you're working with people, what are the qualities that you look for in those people that you're surrounding yourself with? I guess I like diverse, uh, diverse opinions, and uh, I encourage people to, um, you know, speak up and share their point of view. And uh, it's, 
I think that's kind of one of the best ways to be a leader is to be inclusive, be supportive, give people kind of that, that feeling of permission that they feel safe to be able to, um, you know, to share their ideas. And I like people that come with the, with, uh, with not just problems, but they also uh, come with, uh, with suggestions and answers and concepts. Greg, what do you find to be the most enjoyable aspects of brand design? Uh, well, I think um, what I love about uh, brand design, I think, is the you you really get to see your work in the wild. And uh, you know, I I can recall that whether I was doing you know building brand identity, building you know kind of logos and things like that, um, you get to see your stuff, and that's an important uh, bit of satisfaction you kind of feel you know you can see it out in the wild i remember the first time i had designed this logo for um, for a technology company when i was living in san francisco and i saw a bus you know drive by with the logo on it <laughs> just about you know i just about fell over i was so happy and i think it um yeah so that's that's satisfying i guess it's satisfying to see your work it also i think makes it easier to describe what it is I do because when people say, Oh yeah, you need brand design or you need like lead design and people kind of like, what do you mean by that? You like design products or whatever. And, and I can say, Oh no, you know, we, you know, you know, the AT&T logo. Well, then my team did that. Or, you know, that like the Sonic logo for AT&T bum, 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 bum. And people go, Oh yeah, I know that, you know, so it becomes uh, relatable and I guess uh, makes it a bit more tangible for people to kind of understand that. So so I think it's just, you know, that, that idea of, of uh, that's enjoyable, honestly. I mean, it's just that sense of, of uh, seeing it out there. I want to turn to um, a, little, a little bit of a deeper dive into what you're all about, but I'm going to do so by asking you to name three to five brands that paint a picture of what you're all about. It's kind of interesting to kind of associate yourself with a brand or think about another brand that way. Um, you know, and it's kind of interesting how I've, uh, you know, what's so funny is um, one of the ways I'll answer this is I've worked at a lot of big companies over the years and I'm brand loyal to those companies. So I guess you could kind of call me a loyal person because I'm brand loyal. So for instance, uh, you know, I used to work at uh, Philips for a long time. So I only buy Philips light bulbs <laughs> and I only, I only buy, uh, I only buy Philips, like a, you know, Philips Sonicare products or Philips shavers. I, I only do that, and it's and it's uh, and I think that's I think maybe that speaks to my loyalty for one thing. So I think I'm kind of a loyal person that way. Um, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Audi, and I don't know what that says about me, but I have a couple of Audis right now, and I just sort of love that. Uh, I just love the kind of the combination of form, function, and utility that they bring. Um, so that's maybe, I'm not sure what that says about me, but I'm a big Audi fan. Um, I think I'll, I'll give a couple more. Um, I was trying to, I was just thinking about what's important to me. This also, I was going to just try to do an analogy of like a, a you know, the, a, a family of brands because family is important to me. So um but I don't want to like say that I'm a, you know, I'm a Procter and Gamble kind of thing, or I'm a, you know, it's more of just a, the idea that family is important to me. The other one though, I will say that I'm a big fan of is Ohio state football, uh, which is <laughs> I'm, from Ohio. I'm from Ohio and I'm a big fan of Ohio state football. So I'll, I'll throw the Ohio state football brand in there too, as, a, as one. So, 
But I think there's something interesting about that. I don't know if you're that way, but I mean, when you work for, you know, I've worked for AT&T for a long time. And so, you know, of course I have AT&T products everywhere and it's just, uh, somehow I become loyal to those. And even though I don't, I no longer work there, I'm still loyal to the products. So, um, which is an interesting thing. Um, yeah, I, I found that over the years as well. Um, I've worked on a lot of brands over the course of my career, and I, I do I do maintain some loyalty to the ones that I've really worked with closely, and partially because you get to know them from the inside out, and you know you get you get an emotional attachment not only to the people who you know are leading or used to lead that brand when you were involved. You've put some blood, sweat, and tears into helping that brand achieve something, and and honestly you know, brands don't always um, do the best job of, of promoting what their true intentions are in the marketplace. But when you get on the inside and you figure that out, you get a different perspective. And, um, and, and maybe you feel more, more passion for a brand um, because you know more about what they really care about inside. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you do know the inner workings and you kind of know how the yeah, I completely agree. Let's talk about your role as a designer. And I, I know like, just, just you're, I know you're very particular about design and I know you, you really focus on uh, the details quite a bit. So before we go there, what talk, to, talk about a brand experience that you recently had where the details, like the details of that experience that were handcrafted by the brand and made you feel something um, made a big difference. One of the experiences I've had is 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 Audi, <laughs> and um, and I think the experience was related to uh, driving a four wheel quattro car in a you know blinding snowstorm with ice and, and snow, and um, the feeling of that kind of a product um, in that type of environment is one that just. Um, gave me a feeling of kind of confidence and command and safety that I, that I just really, really enjoy. So it's, it's um, when you have a, yeah, that kind of thing where it's, where you're working with something that is really built, truly built for that type of environment. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a, you know, to me, that's a, is a great experience. I have to have to say that I'm very loyal to Delta airlines as well. And through all of this COVID, um, the way that they handled, you know, canceled flights, changing tickets um, without question and without um, and making it kind of seamless is something that just continues to, uh, at least for me, it, it makes me more and more loyal to Delta in the way that they they just handled stuff with, uh, you know, handling the kind of the adversity that's happening to their industry and to people throughout all of this, and they just do it without a uh, without question maintaining kind of the safety of, of the people, but also understanding that, my gosh, you know, everything is just uh, upended and the, the way they handled customer service and, and um, all of that has been, I think has been exemplar, so. Those are two great examples. It sounds to me, Greg, like maybe there were some limbic sparks in those experiences, that meeting of emotional motivation and brand desire that keeps you loyal. I think so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'm totally a geek on Audi these days, just because a lot of that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, yeah. 
And I think the, the Delta one too. I mean, it's just, it is very satisfying. Just, you know, I've found myself even saying to Delta at, at the end of some of these calls with customer service saying, Hey, I love Delta. You know, <laughs> <laughs> why do I go out of my way to say that? It sounds kind of stupid. Oh, that's kind of funny. It's an important thing too, is, um, you know, things that I kind of value, I guess it is. Because one of the things you were asking about is, um, you know, when you were just talking about the, the people you surround yourself with and um, it got me thinking a little bit about this idea of, you know, I, I really like optimism and I like to kind of do my work with from a position of positivity as opposed mm-hmm. to positivity. And um, I think that it reminds me of that, um, I don't know if you've ever saw that children's book around um, bucket fillers. You know, they're, you're either, you know, everyone's got a bucket and they're, yeah. And you're either filling somebody's bucket or you're emptying somebody's bucket. And I really do think that there's something around that idea, especially when you're working with people and you're working with teams, it doesn't take much to just kind of fill somebody's bucket. And um, especially when you're in, in a kind of a leader and you're in, you know, you work in any kind of work environment, I think, but just the, that day to day, you're always reviewing work and you're always, um, um, giving feedback on work and giving direction to work. And you can either do that from, from two vantage points. You can either be one where you're supportive and you're encouraging and you're trying to steer from a space of positivity, which I think is bucket filling and you're in your building confidence in people uh, and in the work and in the team or you're, or you're not. And I think, you, you know, we've all probably been in those situations where someone is just taking, always taking the, uh, the water out of the bucket and it's always kind of uh, deflating and yeah. um, and marginalizing and all of that. And I think it's, I, I like to be trying to, I hope to think that I try to be a bucket filler when I'm doing when, in my work. Um, so. Yeah, well, we've known each other as you alluded to earlier for quite some time. I think it's been over 10 years since we started working together um, when you joined AT&T and I was, I was supporting that organization. And I, I saw um, just how you, worked with your teams and supported your teams. And I was on the receiving end of your feedback for, for a long time. Um, and and you, always, you always did that from the perspective of optimism and positivity and, and really encouraging the work to just get better and better in the most, um, in, in, in the most delightful ways uh, that someone could receive that information. I want to ask you a little bit about the roles that you've had. You, you, were, um, you led brand design at AT&T for quite a while. Before that, as you mentioned, you were at Philips Design. Um, you led some aspects of design at 3M, and now you're at Sage. And for those who don't know, can you describe a bit about the role of leading design at big companies? Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I've, I guess I've... Um, spent my career kind of on this uh, straddling this kind of world of leading brand and leading design or leading brand design. And and to me, those things start to become, they bleed together very, uh, very closely. And I don't like to even distinguish so much the difference between leading design and brand design, because I kind of look at it as all the same thing. Um, And uh, I think when you're, when you're a, a design leader or a or a brand design leader you kind of have to be sort of equal parts kind of communicator motivator um and i think it's uh you know when i think about the, the case for i mean you just think about why 
why do you why do companies invest in design and why do they invest in in brand design and, and building up their brand and i think it's what i think is um key to this idea is that when you think about brands and the power of strong brands i think when you really think about what's behind that a lot of time it's it's really it's design because design is what makes a brand you know palpable and powerful it's how you how a brand is, is expressed and then how you kind of get that that um experience is largely through the act of design whether you're talking about communication design or experience design product design that is what's making a brand tangible and palpable powerful and i think the um key to that is the idea that you know we all know kind of strong brands that are out there but those strong brands who have these great experiences that they create that are kind of largely emotional they win the hearts and minds of their customers right and then that gives them those brands who have that they have a competitive advantage in the marketplace and that competitive advantage uh, is, is powerful people want to return to that experience over and over again you know just like i have with delta or i have with audi you become brand loyal and that's uh that kind of that kind of preference that kind of loyalty that leads to higher margins um you know lower rate of you know acquiring customers becomes easier all of those things are are you know just very strong business drivers and have strong business impact so and then you know the thing about that too though is that we've all had those great brand experiences right you know when you kind of when you feel one you kind of know it but the thing is you know those don't happen by accident right those are things that are actively designed so behind every great brand experience is largely a strong design team and or a strong agency providing that and uh that's largely what um you know it's 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 a lot of what is is behind i think that the the strength of strong brands out there are is is great great design so um yeah so now when you think a little bit about leading design in in big companies um you know i think the the trick too about design and brand design is it can be a a powerful tool uh, a powerful emotional tool and and also an inspirational tool um i think in in a lot of ways you know when you think about brand and brand design it, it shouldn't be you know the, the function of a of a of a brand team or a brand management team or leadership team shouldn't be so much about just compliance it should be about inspiration and you you know brand should be able to inspire and i think when you and i've been in, in situations many times where you're creating um a brand and that brand serves as a it's almost a beacon of inspiration of where the company can go to it creates belief and inspiration of a future state uh and that i think is very powerful like if you think about my gosh a how can a brand you know in in, in for the the colleagues and for everyone who is working in it can strong brand design kind of gives you a beacon of where the company is supposed to go and where the company could be and uh creates this sort of gravitational pull to pull the company to a future state that's a powerful position to be in and is largely what the role i think of uh of uh brand leadership is within a company is to kind of create inspiration and create belief um of what the what the company uh can be the you know the other thing you i'm thinking about when you kind of just ask this question about big companies because a lot of it is about 
scale. And especially when you're in a big company like a, a you know, like a Philips or, a, or an AT&T or 3M, you know, designing at scale and, and creating brand systems at scale is, is um, you know, is, is a big problem. You have to think in systems. And uh, I used to have this, uh, and I kind of still do have this kind of analogy when I was at AT&T specifically, because you just think of this, the scale of that, of that enterprise. And my analogy was this rushing river, you know, like there's so much stuff that gets created every day. If you're trying to manage that and you're trying to redirect it, or you, you can't be sort of standing in the river and you know trying to kind of like say, well, let's let's tweak this thing here, or let's tweak this thing, or that needs to be changed, or this needs to change, because it's just too much and you can't have any impact on it. So you really have to think in terms of systems and making sure that you're, you know, it's back to this idea of you know, making it easier for people to do the right thing with the brand and harder to do the wrong thing. And uh, a lot of that is through inspiration, it's through motivation, it's through kind of creating the systems and pieces and parts and the, and the templates to keep consistency and quality at, at, a, at an enterprise-wide level. That's, that's um, complex stuff, um, but, I, but, I, but I kind of love that, uh, love that, being able to do that kind of thing. What are some of the core principles that you bring into the design work that you do? Throughout my career, one of the things that I think that is a is kind of a principle and an act of design is kind of this idea of um, it's sort of the idea of zooming out one time. You know, and you can think about the idea that if you're trying to solve a design problem, whether it's a you know brand designer or whatever, you kind of need to think about it in terms of of, of zooming out so you can design for the bigger context. And so you can kind of think of, well, you know, you're designing a chair, but what kind of room is that chair going to go into? Or if you're designing a room, what kind of building is that room going into? So it's kind of zooming out. And I think that what that does, that kind of, that type of thinking, it allows you to kind of reframe opportunities and reframing the opportunities so that they're bigger. So you're thinking about the problem in a bigger way is, is powerful. So a couple of examples of that. Um, I remember when um, when I was with AT and T, the um, the head of the uh, of basically the CTO who kind of ran the whole um, all of the technicians for for, uh, for AT and T uh, wanted to redesign the hard hats uh, that everyone wore, and and he he wanted to just redo that. And I and I remember thinking, well, is this about is this kind of about putting a logo on a different side of the hat or what are we really trying to achieve here? Um, what's the impact we want? And we kind of sort of reframe the opportunity to think, well, this is, if we're gonna redesign uh, and, and lean into the idea of design for our technicians, how can we kind of reframe the opportunity so it's, it's more about um, you know, creating confidence and creating a distinction and creating a feeling of safety so we really took what was just initially a, a let's redesign the hard hats to really designing the idea of performance wear uh, to make sure that our technicians were performing the best uh, way possible. So that's an act of zooming out to trying to understand the bigger context. The same kind of thing can be said for um, when I was at, at, at 3M, we were also you know designing a lot of the, uh, the safety wear that... Uh, that, that people used in um, 
personal safety. So this is think about things like um, uh, when you're on a, on a work site and you have respirators on and you have kind of hard hats and you have uh, safety mechanisms. It's less about designing an individual product. It's more about designing safety. And when you're thinking about that larger context of what you're designing for, you're able to kind of see across that experience and make associations between between products, how a product should be talking to another product, how this product should work with that product, and how things should work the same. Um, it, it allows you to kind of think about the design context and the entire experience in a, in a much bigger way. So I think that's a that kind of core principle of, of zooming out so that you can really understand how that ecosystem of products and experiences and services really work together is is really an essential kind of core principle when it comes to design being successful it's very subjective right i mean to a certain extent it's subjective but what is what does it feel like when design is successful to you what is what is what does that look like in a corporation when something crosses your desk and you're asked is this is this good enough is can we can we go to print on this can we can we develop this experience what is that what does it feel like when design is successful you know, it's back to probably this idea of when you're creating successful solutions or when you're making impactful um, design, whether you're talking about B2C or B2B, you're really trying to connect emotionally. So something that kind of connects emotionally and ultimately maybe creates desire is uh, desire for that product or desire for that experience. Then, you know, you're, you're probably creating something that's very, very successful. Um, I remember seeing this, um, was working with, the with some people at Coca-Cola and they were, they were just talking about, and, you know, from a design perspective, how do you design desire? And I thought that was a very interesting idea, the idea of designing desire. Uh, and that is, uh, yeah, such a powerful, powerful idea. Um, you know, we all probably remember those kind of moments where you see like something that just knocks you off your socks and one of uh, out of your socks and, and with its with its brilliance. But I remember seeing the um, remember when the, the the first iPod came out. So they had you know the this brilliant um, product that kind of that felt like it met a uh, a new kind of customer need. Um, they had. A kind of a brilliant idea in the idea that a thousand songs in your in your pocket and then the campaign that went oh it was just so brilliant with these characters who were kind of dancing and you just saw the the simplicity of the of the ipod kind of coming out of a pocket and into your ears the whole thing was just um was was just brilliant i mean it, it's just um and i think that's kind of an example where they in some ways they had designed desire. When I talk about limbic sparks, I'm talking about the moments when emotional motivation meets brand desire. What do you believe are some of the best ways to create brand desire? I, I think you have to really understand the category you're designing for it in, a, in a really deep way. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I had an interesting experience with um, while I was at AT&T, where we were we were doing a lot of, of real primary kind of cultural research at a time um, 
when, you know, mobility, you know, basically mobile phones were really just taking over. And it was kind of, a, and it, this sounds like, you know, ancient history, but really this was only about eight, 10 years ago when, when people really almost stopped uh, calling each other and started texting each other. And you, you had this, this kind of almost revolution in the way that people were communicating with each other. And we started really digging into that, that what, was, what this meant for people, what this meant for culture, what this meant for society. And then you start to think, well, what's AT&T's role in that? And what value do we bring to it? And what was really fascinating about it is uh, we also learned that people loved the technology, but they were associating the technology more with a phone provider rather than the network. And the net, none of the phones worked without the network. And none of this you know, texting or calling or chatting or video consumption happened without the network, but, they, but the network was getting no value. So you know, it's interesting then you, to think about you know, in the idea of how do you apply research and how do you apply insights to help you, how to help you solve problems? And sometimes that kind of research helps you. When the more you understand the kind of the context of that, the more you're able to turn it into strategies, strategies mm -hmm. to overcome. And so you have, uh, you know, sometimes that's about they can they can insights like that, people research. Um, understanding people and understanding that can help you really design, drive new strategies. And so in this case, we realized, my gosh, we have to overcome, we have to remind people, how can we use design to help remind people that they love the network? And so, you know, the, the network wasn't playing a place in people's lives. And that's actually where we realized we needed sound, like sound could actually play an important role to help people remind people um, that they, we're having great experiences that were brought to you by the network and by, by AT&T. So we actually started to invest in sound as a mechanism to brand those moments where, you know, to remind people that they were, they were having a great experience. And, uh, and that turned into everything from, you know, sonic branding and sonic identity, sonic ringtones, sonic, uh, you know, things to, to remind people um, that they were having a, a great brand moment. Um, so that's, that's kind of how you kind of go about those things. And I'm curious, you know, you've worked for companies that have invested in understanding emotional insights and you've worked in situations where that was new territory for the leadership team. Um, so why do you think that some brands or leaders are neglecting the power of emotional insights in their approach to growing their business? I think it's just sort of nascent territory, right? It's just new. And it's, uh, it's a new idea that, that I think that, you know, consumer brands, I think you're, you're very, are probably much more seasoned and um, um, used to doing this, that kind of work where they kind of lean into emotions and emotional branding and emotional connection. But I think in B2, B2B world, I don't think it's something that is top of mind. I don't think there's a comfort level there. There is a lot of research that's happening with that now within um, uh, to kind of suggest that, you know, brands that connect emotionally um, over, is, is more successful than brands that connect rationally. And so that's becoming, you know, not just speculation, it's becoming truth, but I don't think it's uh, necessarily made its way into um, 
you know, into the into the regular everyday mechanisms of, of the marketing machines and things like that. So, yeah, that's my kind of observation. On it, so. I, I, I think you're spot on and it's, it's, it's why we do what we do and the way we do it and why we're having conversations like this to get the word out. So last question for you is, um, you know, as, as a brand and design leader um, who, who's worked at a variety of places and has had some really cool experiences, what is it that you wish you knew um, years ago that you know now, perhaps something that other, you know, maybe brand leaders or design leaders in their earlier in their career could learn from? To me, it's probably the, the essential skill of, of stakeholdering is what I'm going to call it. Um, because, it, it, you know, uh, design can sometimes be a, um, you know, it's a creative act, right? And you put a lot of your, uh, your blood, sweat, and tears and your heart into design. And uh, if, you, if you kind of operate on an island and as a designer, um, you, you know, you run the risk of being unsuccessful. And I think the, the more you're designing and collaborating and bringing stakeholders along with you on the journey, um, you're going to be a lot more successful. And that took me a long time to kind of learn. That's one. The other thing, Kevin, I think is, is important um, is that as a, as a designer or as a you know, brand designer or brand leader, uh, you have to make sure that you're, you're, understanding the business that you're in and you're speaking the language of the business because if you're just using language that is that is only purely marketing language or purely design language or brand language uh you're 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 going to be a little bit tone deaf and you're going to turn off people who are who you're trying to influence so i think it's important for people to especially as you're kind of coming up in your career is that you're understanding the language of business and you have to speak in those terms rather than speak in your own kind of language because it's, uh, uh, you know, you're going to be a lot more successful if you, if, you, uh, if you approach it that way. I wish I would have known that uh, earlier on in my career, for sure. Well, I have so enjoyed this conversation with you, Greg. Thank you so much for joining me on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.